You are listening to StarQuest Radio. I am Kurt Remke. We're going to start this episode out by talking with Mark Anderson, the director of StarQuest Observatory at the Fort Wayne Astronomical Society. I will warn you, my conversation with Mark took place earlier in December, so a few things he talked about are a tad outdated. We will then hear from Tirthak Saha, recently named in the Forbes 30 Under 30 list for his engineering achievements. He and I will take an aural trek to Mars and discuss the obstacles that will be in place for the future team of astronauts who will take on the task of colonizing the Red Planet. I'm here in studio with Mark Anderson. He's here to give an overview of what you might be able to check out when stargazing over the next few months. Well, let me start naked eye and then work my way up to telescopes. <clears throat> Uh, in December, December thir- the night of December 13th and 14th, you have the Geminid uh, meteor shower. It is one of the more consistent. In other words, you can kind of count on it year after year where some of them have good years and bad years. Uh, the Geminids uh, uh, radiate from the constellation Gemini. It gets up high enough that uh, the best viewing will be like late, midnight to 4 a.m., but you can uh, probably count on about 120 an hour, uh, average a couple of minutes. So if you don't mind braving the cold, that's a good one to see naked eye. If you have a pair of binoculars, and lots of people have pairs of binoculars, uh, then there are a number of nice targets out. Um, one of those targets is the double cluster in Perseus. Um, from my house out in the country, you can actually see it naked eye. It's a little blurry spot. Uh, but it looks nice in a wide-field telescope. Uh, and of course, while you're there, you might as well go down to the Alpha Perseid cluster that's right there. Uh, that's a better binocular uh, object than it is a telescopic object uh, because of the field of view, because it's so wide. And then, of course, this time of year, even early evening, you can begin to see in the east the Pleiades ride, uh, rise. Great naked eye, great binocular. Very few telescopes that I own have a field of view wide enough, looks better in the finder scope than it does in the telescope itself. But again, that's a great target. And then a little later on, as Taurus the bull rise, you've got the, uh, uh, the Hyades, which is centered around Aldebaran. And that's a nice, again, very large, like the Alpha Persia, uh, very nice in binoculars. Um, while you've got your binoculars out, and it's getting to the point that in the evening it's fairly high up, but a naked eye item from my house is the Andromeda Galaxy. Uh, and it's a fuzzy spot, naked eye. Uh, in a telescope around here with the, the skies that we have out in the rural areas, you get a pretty good look at the core of it uh, in binoculars. Best look I ever got of it was out west in binoculars because you didn't see just the core. You saw the whole thing. It was pretty spectacular. If you have a telescope and uh, a four-inch, I did it the other night in a four-inch scope, You'll not only see the Andromeda galaxy, M31, you'll see M32, a companion galaxy that looks like a fuzzy star. And then on the other side of the Andromeda galaxy, there's this oval haze, which is M110. Those are all part of our local group, uh, a nice cluster of three. Uh, While you've got your telescope out, uh, you might want to point it to, while you're in Andromeda, down to the north edge of the bright line of stars uh, to the star Almac. Uh, that's a, just a beautiful double star. It takes a little bit of power to break the stars apart, which uh, a lot like Alberia, you've got a bright yellowish-white primary and a little blue-green green secondary. Um, if you want a challenge, 
you can move off the, the end of triangulum, which is just underneath uh, Andromeda, and actually it looks better in binoculars, and look for M33, and that's a face-on spiral galaxy. In some of the bigger scopes, it is so diffuse it's hard to see, but I've always found it easy to catch in binoculars. Um, if you like clusters, the winter season tends to be the season of clusters, uh, open clusters. Uh, as uh, Auriga arises in the evening, there are three clusters there, M36, 37, and 38. And M37 is one of my favorite because it's just a field of these tiny little pinpoint stars. They're pretty dense. It's just a, a beautiful cluster. Uh, M38 also has a little companion cluster, a small NGC cluster that's part of it, and it looks like just a little haze. Uh, while you're at it, go over to uh, Cassiopeia. Off the end of Cassiopeia, you've got M52, a nice cluster. Uh, and then for those that like uh, asterisms, it's a cluster. It's NGC 457. Some people call it the OWL cluster. I like the ET cluster. So you're going to see a double star that's the two bright eyes, and then you'll see the stars that form the body of it. Uh, and I love showing that to people because they're, oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> Looks like its name. Um, while you're out, uh, a little later, as Gemini, and I mentioned Gemini before, rises, you've got, uh, Gemini's the twins, and Castor and Pollux, the two stars there. Uh, Castor is a nice double star, two equal magnitude bright stars. And they have discovered that Pollux is the brightest star that we know of with an exoplanet orbiting around it. Um, and that's what makes it a little bit unique. And then off the other end, the southern end of Gemini, you're going to find another cluster, M35. It, it also has a little companion NGC cluster. While you're out, uh, if you wait just a little later, the Orion rises. And of course, one of the winter showpieces is the Great Orion Nebula. So take a look at that, too. I am often asked, how do I get started? How do I find these things? And I can answer both of those questions with, with one answer. There are a couple books. Uh, one is called Turn Left at Orion, and my favorite is Star Watch by Phil Harrington. Uh, the nice thing about those two books is that for each object, they'll give you uh, a finder. You don't have to have a star map to, to find these things. So for each object, they'll show you the night sky, they'll show you the constellation, and show you where in the constellation and tell you how to get to it uh, to find these objects. The other thing that's really nice about those two books is that they give you some idea of what it looks like both in binoculars and, and in the telescope. And people ask me, how do you start? Binoculars is a great way to start. Now, I, I will admit some of these clusters I mentioned will be a little fuzzy spot in binoculars, but maybe they'll whet your appetite. And in as small as a three or four inch scope, you can begin to resolve stars in them. And if you like a bigger scope, you can resolve lots of stars in them. So that should keep you busy for a while. Don't forget about us this winter and when the beginning of April comes and it's a nice night, come out and see us. We generally have at least three or four, sometimes five or six scopes. So. Uh, you get to look through a different style of scopes, which is nights, because the other pe question people ask me is, well, what kind of scope should I get? And the answer to that is not short. <laughs> the best thing to do is to look through them and then have the answer as you look through them.
Thanks again for joining us, Mark. You always have a wealth of knowledge to share about the night sky, and we look forward to hearing from you in future episodes. The observatory is currently closed for the winter, but you can come check it out starting at the beginning of April of 2018. Throughout the winter, we will keep StarQuest Radio going. We'll bring Mark back periodically to tell us about our cold winter skies, and I will dig into some of those features with more aural treks, and I might even give you some tips for locating celestial bodies with your telescopes and binoculars at home. I'll definitely be picking up those books that Mark mentioned earlier, and I might discuss those in future episodes. And with that note, we will begin this episode's aural trek to the red planet Mars. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. These, of course, are the words of Carl Sagan, As Voyager 1 was leaving the solar system, Carl Sagan requested that NASA turn the spacecraft around and take one last photograph of Earth from the edge of our solar system across the expansive void. The photo of Earth, taken from a distance of 6 billion kilometers, that's 3.7 billion miles, was famously christened Pale Blue Dot. In the photograph, the Earth is smaller than a single pixel, suspended among bands of sunlight scattered by the camera's optics. What Carl Sagan spoke in the year 1990 about the peaceful revelations humanity received when looking upon the Earth as a single pixel of a photograph is still relevant today, and sadly will likely be more relevant as we continue to make poor decisions on Earth. But for this episode, we are going to focus on this very last bit of Sagan's iconic words. The only home we've ever known. As we enter into the year of 2018, with Elon Musk's SpaceX aiming their focus on Mars and with Boeing now entering the race to the red planet, we are ever closer to that not being the case anymore. I had Tirthak Saha in studio to talk about this very topic, as he is a local scientist who once worked on an academic research project hosted by NASA, where as team leader, Tirthak explored the realities of surviving on Mars for 20 years or more during the process of colonization. Tirthak also was just included on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, which is an incredibly high honor. Fort Wayne should be proud to have him as a resident. He also writes on his blog, The Futurist Archives. His post, Pale Red Dot, is where most of the research for this episode has come from. The reason I wrote this article is that there is a lot of discussion going on right now about man's planned journey to Mars. And there's uh, basically two sides to it, and I'm simplifying this by a lot. But uh, one side is we humans are explorers by nature, and this is the next great adventure, and we should do it to find out more about the universe that we live in. And, and to cross that next big hurdle in humanity's existence. And the other side is, no, we should focus all our uh, energies and scientific knowledge to solving the problems on Earth before we leave the planet and you know try to go and settle elsewhere because once we have that option, the incentive to make Earth a better place greatly reduced. So those are mainly the two sides. But I wanted to write this article to inform the public of the 
technical aspects of what it would take to get to Mars, regardless of whether we should do it or not. Because once you have all the pieces of the puzzle in your head, from a technical standpoint, it's easier to participate in the discussion, which is, again, the idea behind the blog, is to get common people talking about these things and, you know, inform public policy, maybe at a later stage. So what are some of these obstacles that astronauts will have to navigate while colonizing Mars? Currently, astronauts on space shuttle missions and flights to the ISS, the International Space Station, they currently get about 3.8 pounds of food per day. That's their ration. At this rate, astronauts would need almost 7,000 pounds of food per person for a five-year round trip to Mars. Just, that's just a five-year round trip to Mars, by the way, at a restricted diet. But like we've said before, we're talking a mission of at least 20 years. And, you know, in the cold, vast expanse of space, food is going to be one of the few human comforts that astronauts can have. And, you know, uh, I can only imagine what it would be like to eat frozen meals and, and bland, tasteless food for that amount of time. Um, that, that would also lead to mental problems, mental health problems. So sending tens of thousands of pounds of food out with the astronauts and all of their other science equipment is pretty much a bust. But Tirthuk's research team came up with some potential solutions. So one possible solution proposed by NASA is to fly a self-contained bioregenerative system to grow the food during the trip to Mars and possibly even plant it when they get to the habitat and they build their houses and stuff like that. Plants in such a system would multitask by providing food, serving as little oxygen factories, cleaning the air like a filter for carbon dioxide exhaled by the crews, and purifying water. You could collect the water runoff and use that as purified water to drink. And this is actually not totally impossible. In fact, NASA has already successfully grown fresh lettuce in the International Space Station. You can go to my article again and to see pictures of that. It's, it's pretty cool. NASA has already identified 10 candidate crops that seem to fit the bill for astronaut food. Lettuce, spinach, carrots, tomatoes, green onions, radishes, bell peppers, strawberries, fresh herbs, and cabbages. But now that I list those off, that actually sounds like a pretty boring diet. One major thing that NASA has to consider is the mental well-being of the astronauts. NASA is also considering sending an unmanned capsule up to Mars before uh, the actual human travel with three years worth of freeze-dried food that has over 200 menus to choose from. And these menus have been created by specialist food scientists and psychologists to maintain a healthy balance of diet and mental health so that the astronauts have enough choices and options and they're happy with the food that they have and it doesn't taste like, you know, frozen food. Speaking of boredom, on March 28, 1934, Admiral Richard Byrd, during his second expedition to Antarctica, where he was in isolation for four months, wrote in his diary that during that time, the things of the world shrank to nothing. This is a feeling, according to Tirthik's research, that is likely to be mirrored and even magnified for future travelers to Mars. So this, this seal-shaped, cuddly, therapeutic robot called Paro... He's not kidding, actually. 
I know that sounds funny, but if you look at the article that I wrote, it has some pictures on it. It was originally built for Alzheimer's patients in Japan. It is meant to be comforting. It is meant to vibrate at certain frequencies when you hug it to promote mental well-being of Alzheimer's patients. So we, we kind of looked at, and some other people were also looking at that as a possible solution, uh, as companions, not necessarily to interact with, but to just have that physical comfort. But that's all after they actually get there. Like, you know, safely arrive after a journey where literally a piece of space dust could take the whole spacecraft down. At these velocities, even a fleck of paint can crater entire critical systems. This has happened multiple times in, in real life, so this is an actual problem. So forget getting to Mars, just getting out of orbit is, is pretty, pretty dangerous and, and a risky venture. Well, that's an easy problem to solve, right? We just need a space Roomba. You know, one of those little robots that move around your living room, dodging your furniture legs and occasionally giving your small pet a ride from the kitchen to their bed? Seriously though, they're kind of working on a space Roomba. There's researchers at the Aerospace Corporation in California who are working to develop a spacecraft that's meant to kind of mop up these pieces of space junk. Um, these tiny ships, they're almost like rugs. They're like flying magic carpets shaped and they're called brain crafts. They're like a sheet that is thinner than a human hair but they're really, really strong. The idea is that each one would just fly around in orbit, and when they come across a piece of space debris, they will wrap around the piece of debris and yank it down into the atmosphere where it will eventually be incinerated about 155 miles above Earth's surface. You can essentially think of it as kind of like a giant saran wrap with thrusters on it. <laughs> That's all for this episode of StarQuest Radio. I'd like to thank Tirthak Saha for joining me in the studio and lending his unique insight into this topic. Remember, he presents this information to inform you on the difficulties that come with inhabiting Mars. It will be very difficult, but as you can see, it looks like it can be done. And I'd also like to say that regardless of whether we succeed in making Mars our second celestial home, we should make strides to protect the first one. Thank you for listening to StarQuest Radio. Keep your ears open for future episodes. And again, thanks to the Fort Wayne Astronomical Society for collaborating on this podcast with me and for always advocating for space in our little region of Indiana, USA.